God is sufficient today, and I want to remind you that if you're ever going to overcome discouragement, then you cannot leave God up on top of Mount Carmel. You must bring him down to Jezreel where you're living today. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Beaufort, South Carolina's Community Bible Church. We're in a series on the life and times of Elijah the prophet. And today we're going to begin dealing with a number of principles on discouragement. Our passage is from 1 Kings 19. We've seen the prophet being used by God as a vessel for some amazing miracles, including making a small amount of flour and oil last far longer than naturally possible, raising a dead boy to life, and bringing fire down from heaven to destroy 800 prophets of Baal. But the Bible tells us that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And the truth is, life is not always a mountaintop experience. Many times we find ourselves in the valley of discouragement. Let's join Dr. Brogy as he presents a message entitled, Overcoming Discouragement. Sometimes people read the Old Testament, but usually just the Psalms and the Proverbs, that tends to be the clean part of their Bible. But Romans 15 reminds us that whatever was written in the Old Testament was written to teach us. So Psalms and Proverbs, I say the clean part, that's the dirty part in the sense that that's the part you've marked up. But the rest of the Bible for the Old Testament tends to be clean. We tend to ignore it as Christians, but we shouldn't. For in the early days of the church, that's all they had. That's how they preached the gospel from the Old Testament scriptures. It was written, Paul said, to give us endurance and to give us encouragement. And we can learn from their victories just as much as we can learn from their defeats. And so we've been studying Elijah. He's a gutsy kind of man. He uh, is a man who we have seen in recent weeks who calls fire and rain down from heaven in our last encounter with him. And he demonstrates that the Lord, he is God. And so what is maybe surprising to some of us is that after this incredible spiritual victory comes some challenges and some deep discouragement in his life. And it seems to happen suddenly, almost without warning. But in retrospect, what happened was entirely predictable. And if you've ever faced discouragement in your Christian life, you're going to be able to relate to this man and to learn some principles on how to overcome discouragement, which you can see is the topic of this morning's message. Now, I hope by now you found it. Find Psalms. It's about dead center in the Bible. Scan to the left, and First and Second Kings is right before First and Second Chronicles. I want to begin by reading our text, First Kings 19, beginning now in verse 1. Now, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life for I am not better than my father's. He lay down and slept under a juniper tree. Behold, there was an angel touching him and he said to him, arise, eat. Then he looked and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones. 
and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So he said, Go forth and stand on the mountain and before the Lord, before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing breeze. Some years ago, General Douglas MacArthur wrote an article entitled Requisite for Military Victory. And in that article, he underscored four keys for any military campaign to be successful. He said, first, there must be morale. That is, there must be a will to win. There must be a cause worth fighting for, dying for. Second, he said there must be strength. They must have the capabilities of a well-equipped army and well-trained soldiers. Third, he said there must be adequate sources of supplies. The, the lifelines have to be kept open. And then fourth and finally, where he spent the bulk of his article, he said you must, in order to win, have a knowledge of the enemy. And he made this statement, and I quote from his article, the greater the knowledge of the enemy, the greater the potential for victory. And then he substantiated that statement by training great military campaigns in history. And he begins with General Joshua, and he goes all the way through Rommel's North African campaign where he was defeated. Now, we know that what MacArthur had to say in the military realm also applies to the spiritual realm because 2 Corinthians 2.11 affirms the same truth, that we're not to be outwitted by the evil one, to which immediately Paul follows with the statement that we are not to be ignorance, ignorant of his schemes. Paraphrase, we are to know how the enemy operates. So MacArthur really concurred with Scripture, the greater the knowledge of the enemy, the greater the potential for victory. And I believe what we find here in 1 Kings 19 really is a case study on the strategy of Satan, especially as it relates to discouragement. And I suspect that maybe, perhaps, one of his chief tools, if not his number one tool, is discouragement. Because if he can discourage you such that you feel like quitting— if he can discourage you so that you come to the place where you seemingly don't care, if Satan can discourage you, he can make you ineffective in your struggle and in your promotion of the kingdom of God, and he can potentially lead you down a trail of spiritual disaster. Many pastors have fallen prey to discouragement, which is why the average stay in a church is only 3.6 years. 
And it's why a large number of young pastors who are now going into the ministry don't last more than two years. Many great biblical leaders fell under discouragement. Moses, in leading some two million people out into the wilderness to go towards the promised land, became discouraged. And at one point, as the book of Numbers underscored, he asked God to take his life. Jonah, after the greatest single revival in all of human history, was ready to curl up and to die. The Apostle Paul, on his third missionary journey, confessed in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he said, we despaired even of life during his ministry there in Asia. But I suppose that of those who have suffered from discouragement, who's most surprising is the prophet Elijah, especially after what we had seen him do up there on top of Mount Carmel. It's an incredible event that we studied last time. Beyond all odds, he defeats the 850 prophets of Baal and the Asherah and single-handedly kills them with the sword. Now, don't forget the context of the passage, or you won't really be able to appreciate God's formula, God's teaching, God's instruction for overcoming discouragement. Elijah had witnessed, if you remember, God's supernatural provision by sending ravens and feeding him there at the brook. God brought him bread and meat daily at the brook sheriff. Then God provided for him in the heart of enemy territory through a widow where God every day filled her need for flour and her jar for oil. Then we saw him pray earnestly, and he did something that had never happened in the history of the world. He raised a dead boy from the dead. And it was in this spiritual energy, you'll remember, that he meets those false prophets on the top of Mount Carmel. He's full of vim and vitality and, and vigor. But as chapter 18 records, while he could stand before those 850 prophets of Baal, where he can believe and trust God to bring fire and rain down from heaven, you read those two chapters, 17 and 18, you think, this man is a super prophet. But the book of James reminds us that Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. The ISV renders it, Elijah was a man just like us. The Ned Bible says, Elijah was a human being like us. The King James, Elijah was a man subject to the like passions that we are. And so I want you to see today that this man of God who is riding really on a spiritual tidal wave falls into incredible discouragement. And he hits a bottom because remember, he is made of the same tissue that you and I are made of. He experiences the same human frailties that we know. Some of you are here today and you think you could take on the world spiritually. You're riding, uh, you're riding a wave of incredible encouragement. But remember, it's often when you are riding on a spiritual high that we will learn this morning you are most vulnerable to falling off that spiritual hobby horse. Or maybe you're listening to me today somewhere in the world and you are deeply discouraged in your spiritual life. Well, I have some good news for you. God gives you some instructions on overcoming discouragement. Now, I recognize that at some point or another, all of us are going to be discouraged. But here in 1 Kings 19, 
in many ways, we have someone who is more than just discouraged. He's deeply discouraged. Now, unlike all the psychobabble that's being written today on this chapter of Scripture, he's not manic depressive. He's not on the verge of some breakdown. That's sheer, unadulterated nonsense and psychobabble. But he is downcast. And as we're going to see today, he's downcast largely over the glory of God. And I am glad to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And I am glad that God did not let this chapter of Scripture be left out of the Bible. I remember as a new and young Christian reading a book, the autobiography of Jim Elliott called The Shadow of the Almighty. And if you know who Jim Elliott is, he's one of five missionaries who left Wheaton College at a time when it was still Bible-believing. And he went to minister to the Aka Indians. In fact, uh, those five men were all slaughtered. And they made the cover of Life magazine. I have that original magazine, and it's a gripping article that they wrote. And when I read his biography, it seemed almost larger than life. And it wasn't until many years later that Elizabeth Elliot, uh, his wife, wrote another book called The Journals of Jim Elliot. And there she included all the ups and downs, his flaws, his flesh, his failures. Now, when you read the Bible, you don't have to worry about the realism that is found here because when God describes people, he paints a portrait warts and all. He doesn't leave anything out, which is another argument for the inspiration of Scripture because if we were writing it, we wouldn't write it this way. But from the standpoint of the narrative, it would have been much less threatening just to have ended the story with his incredible victory up there on top of Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18. But that would have been contrary to fact, so God includes chapter 19. And I think you will discover this morning that the point of Elijah's greatest strength that we have witnessed and studied in chapter 18 becomes the point of his greatest failure here in chapter 19. And so I want us to examine what happens because, again, the Scripture says that we are not to be ignorant of Satan's schemes. We are in a spiritual battle, and the battle is not between people, flesh and blood, but principalities and powers and dark forces. And Satan, by the way, is not very original. <laughs> He's still using the same techniques today. May I remind you what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, "'No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man.'" And God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able. But with the temptation, he promises to provide a way of escape that you might be able to endure it. A way of escape that we might endure it. And we're going to see that the way of escape is found in the teachings and the explanations that God delineates in his word. And one of those ways of escape from discouragement is underscored here in 1 Kings 18. So this morning, we're going to look at three principles in dealing with the fiery darts of discouragement. I hope you printed out your note-taking outline. If you're listening to us online, the first point in your outline concerns the cause of discouragement. He unfolds for us in the first two verses the cause of discouragement, and it begins with Elijah's difficult circumstances. Now, please notice verse 1 here in chapter 19, now Ahab. Now, remember Ahab, he is the king ruling over the northern kingdom, the king, 
kingdom split right after Solomon into the north called Israel, into the south called Judah. Originally, it was all called Israel, but now it's divided into two. And Ahab is the most important figure in the northern kingdom. In fact, he received six chapters of press. And if you remember, in 1 Kings 16 and verse 30, God said, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil and the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. That's his claim to fame. And if you read chapters 12 through 16, you see how significant that statement is. Out of all the kings listed, Omri, Ahab's dad, was rated, according to verse 25 of chapter 16, as the pinnacle of evil today. But then suddenly, the award is wrenched from his hand and given to his son. So reading further here into verse 1 of our chapter, now Ahab told Jezebel, that is Ahab's beautiful and wicked wife. And if you remember, she brought and initiated the demon-inspired child-sacrificing worship of Baal into the nation of Israel. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Ahab comes home after a long and discouraging trip I mean, think of what just took place on this very day that we're reading about. He had set out with his servant Obadiah to that drought-stricken land looking for water and some possible grass for the crops, uh, for the cattle. But in the process, he meets Elijah, whom he calls that troubler of Israel. And if you remember, Elijah, really in control, in command, he challenges Ahab to a showdown with the prophets of Baal and Asherah, with the one true living God up there on top of Mount Carmel. And so the prophets of Baal, if you remember, they pray and they chant and they dance and they cut themselves for over six hours. They scream and they beg Baal to bring rain, but nothing happens. Then Elijah prays for approximately six seconds, and instantly a ball of fire comes down from heaven and consumes his sacrifice and the wet wood and the stones and everything even the ash is gone and then elijah if you remembered last week prayed earnestly for rain it had not rained for three and a half years but he had a promise of god to lean on and he believes god and the rain comes down from heaven and then he outruns ahab's chariot all the way some 20 miles down to Jezreel. So Ahab comes home and he says to Jezebel, Jezebel, honey, you can't believe what happened today. Our prophets of Baal prayed for six hours to Baal to bring fire down on the sacrifice, but it never happened. And then Elijah, that troubler, he prayed for six seconds and then fire came down and instantly consumed everything into oblivion. And all the people were shouting, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. And then Elijah had all of our prophets slain. And when Jezebel hears how all of her prophets are killed with the sword, she's infuriated. Notice what she says, her response in verse 2. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and even more. If I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. In essence, she's saying, if I don't cut off your neck by tomorrow, if I don't kill you within the next 24 hours, may the gods kill me. I hate you so much, preacher, 
that I'm willing to even sacrifice my own life that you might die. Yes, King Ahab comes home with a negative report, but it's Queen Jezebel who acts because she's not only wearing the pants, she's wearing the pantyhose in the family. She's the leader of this particular home. And she's a woman with a callous, fallen, depraved heart. And she's really confirmed in her unbelief. And she has given clear proof of what God had done up there on top of Mount Carmel, showing that Baal is a non-entity. But that does not change her mind. Sometimes as Christians, we think, well, if we can just give a strong apologetic argument, if we can give the truth to people in such a way that we can impress upon their minds that the Lord Jesus, he is God. If we can give our best and most rigorous argument, then they will fall on their knees and repent and believe. But Jezebel here is a reminder of the fallen depravity of man. There is a blaze of light up there on top of Mount Carmel, but God needs to give internal light. God needs to open a heart, and it's really humbling when you realize that. It really has a way of humbling your evangelism and your preaching when you really understand that. It causes you to fall on your face before God and intercede with God for men. Paul said it this way, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the, unbelie un uh, the unbelieving. So here's Jezebel, a depraved woman. Everything is consumed there on top of Mount Carmel, except the blindness of her false worship to Baal. You know, unless God works, all of our efforts are useless and she's so hard, and she says, Elijah, I hate you. I'm going to kill you. And when Elijah gets wind of this, he gets the Jezebel jitters. Beginning now in verse 3, we move from Elijah's difficult circumstances to Elijah's lack of faith. Let's look, if you will, now at verse 3. And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servants there. Elijah runs, and he runs, through, uh, runs south through Judah. He runs all the way through the southern kingdom, all the way to Bathsheba. It's about a 120-mile trip. Here's a map just to give you some perspective and to get your geographical bearings clear. Again, remember, he had been at Mount Carmel. He goes to Jezreel, and then he goes all the way to the south. And you can see here on the map that Beersheba is out there um, west of the Dead Sea. It's a very wilderness, a very desolate kind of place. Now, can you believe that this great man of God would fall under such incredible intimidation? He had faced an entire nation that had opposed him. He personally with the strength of God, executed the 850 prophets of Baal and the Asherah. He, by the strength of God, outran Ahab's chariot 18 to 20 miles all the way down to Jezreel. He had seen God's provision at a brook in Zarephath. He saw the Lord take care of him through a widow. He saw God's protection. He even raised a little boy who had been dead back to life, and you would have thought that this man at this point would have unshakable faith. What happened? 
There's a lesson that we can learn from this prophet concerning the cause of discouragement. Discouragement happens when you forget what God did yesterday because you're looking at the circumstances that you are harboring today. When you forget what God did yesterday because you're looking at your circumstances today, you will quickly become discouraged. Yesterday, the only thing in Elijah's vision was the Lord God. Today, all he can see is Jezebel. And so his perspective is really distorted, and so discouragement sets in when you really forget what God did. He had just come off of a great victory on top of Mount Carmel, and yet Jezebel, she can come up with this little statement that she swears in the name of a God that he just demonstrated as a non-entity, and he gets the Jezebel jitters. Why? Because he had forgotten what God had done, and we're going to see why he forgot in just a moment. But one of the reasons sometimes we get discouraged, sometimes we want to quit, is because we forget what God did yesterday. We forget his faithfulness. We forget how he met us in the past, and we become consumed with today. And there are too many Christians who put God in the past. Listen, I've been in more than one church where I've preached and I've heard the people say, oh, God used to do something great here. We used to see people come to the Lord. We saw a dynamic movement. People were joining all the time. We were having an impact in our community. My, weren't those great days. And on more than one occasion, I've wanted to say, is God dead? Is God not still alive? Do you just have to reminisce about the good old days? Have you forgotten what God can do this day? And God is sufficient today, and I want to remind you that if you're ever going to overcome discouragement, then you cannot leave God up on top of Mount Carmel. You must bring him down to Jezreel where you're living today. The God of yesterday, the Bible says, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He never, ever, ever changes. God is not dead. He is alive, and if we are failing to see him, it is not he who is relocated, it likely is us. God is present in all our situations, and tomorrow we'll see that even in our darkest times and situations, God calls us to set our eyes upon him, the author and perfecter of our faith. To listen again to today's message, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program ELI5. Now here's Dr. Brogy again with an invitation to a most exciting journey scheduled for the fall of this year. For thousands of years, no place on earth has been more precious to God's people than the land of Israel. It was here that God first chose to bring the Messiah and it is where he will usher in his second coming. Nothing compares to visiting the places you've only read about. For those serious students of the Bible, a trip to Israel adds depth and interest to every page of Scripture. Search the Scriptures Israel tour is far more than a vacation. It's a spiritual journey that will impact your faith in an intense way. I'd love for you to go with me to Israel September the 28th to October the 8th 
or October the 7th to October the 17th. If you would like to have information, you can go online to stsisraeltour.com. The price is inclusive for everything. Airfare, hotels, three meals a day, tips, everything. Join Dr. Brogy for an exciting and inspiring journey to the Holy Land. All the details are online at stsisraeltour.com. And join us again tomorrow in our ongoing study of the prophet Elijah as we search the scriptures.